Hey guys, this is Cobain the Christian. I want to welcome all the new subscribers that I have from my discussion over on Jay's channel about scripture. I, I had a really great time in that discussion, and I hope um, that we can do something like that again sometime. Uh, but for those who are new to the channel, uh, this is part of an ongoing series that I've been doing on the nature and the interpretation of apophatic theology. Before we get into the subject of the video in detail, I do want to mention a couple things. First of all, the first piece of uh, True Blue premium content has been released on my Patreon account. Now, the way that I'm going to do this is I'm going to release a book review of a theological or theologically related book uh, at least once a week. Half of those will be available to those who are subscribed to the first tier or plus five and up all of them will be um, available to those who are subscribed to the premium tier at ten dollars and up so the first review discusses nt wright's book on the historical jesus jesus and the victory of god um if you're uh, i think you'll you'll really enjoy it if you are in a financially sound position uh, please do consider making a contribution if you get something useful out of this channel uh it is important to producing a regular stream of quality content uh, but thank you to everyone who's watching and welcome to all my new viewers uh, so if you haven't seen those other videos in apophatic theology, maybe at least skip through them before. Uh, but I do think this video can stand on its own in certain ways. So the point I want to make here is that apophatic theology is not a vague motioning towards the idea that rationality really isn't appropriate to God. In the first video in the series, we critiqued the strict use of the phrase the one who prays is a true theologian, and the theologian is the one who prays. Not in that it's false, but that the tradition of the use of reason in constructive dogmatic theology cannot simply be reduced to piety or the ascetic life. This is Florovsky's major point in his Ways of Russian Theology, a two-volume work which frames the way in which he interprets the Russian tradition and the way in which he interprets its constructive engagement with the Christian West. So when we speak about apophatic theology, we're not speaking about theology in the sense of, oh, we really can't say anything about God because we're creatures and God is not a creature, thus what do we have to say about each other? Uh, in fact, the doctrine of the divine energies, which is so often considered to be a paradigmatic example of apophatic theology, was in reality the opposite. Not that it denied the importance of the apophatic, but that it was Barlam who was arguing from a hyper-apophatic perspective. Because Barlam said, this is what started the controversy, he said that the Roman Catholic position on the Filioque is wrong, because on account of God's being God and us not being God, we really can't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds in the Father and the Son. And Palamas says, well, I agree, it doesn't proceed in the Father and the Son, but that's a very dangerous argument to make. And Palamas will then elucidate the role that the divine energies play in qualitatively revealing actual truths about God in relation to his creatures by our participation 
in his uncreated grace. So here's the way that you want to cash this out. Okay, so the notion of energy, energia, it really, in many contexts, ought to be translated as activity, because translating it into English as energy, I think, endows it with an esoteric sense, which was not part of the intention of most of the authors who used this word. Energia is, in fact, the word used in the Aristotelian tradition for actuality, but it is also used in the patristic and the philosophical tradition to denote motion from one place to another, also motion in terms of the development of a potential thing into an actual thing. There's a whole tradition undergirding short little summaries like this. Um, so when I'm talking about what I'm about to talk about, processions, modalities, all these different words, please keep in mind that I'm not talking about something that's different from the doctrine of the energies. Instead, I'm using different words in order to capture specific aspects or features of the doctrine of the divine energies. And we'll talk about what this means in relation to the essence energies distinction. So look at this word, being. We've talked before about how language is not arbitrary. That's become something of a truism. Language is arbitrary. Language is not arbitrary. Language is not an evolutionary adaptation, and language is not a barrier to our communion with God. This is a presumption that I think a lot of people will take into all sorts of theological conversations and debates. For example, when discussing the inspiration of Scripture, Scripture is presumed to be necessarily imperfect because it is written in human language, and how can human language express truth about God the uncreated, but that fundamentally neglects an essential aspect of the Christian revelation concerning God, which is that the Father always acts and thinks in the second person of the Trinity, who is the divine eternal Logos. And the Father in the Son was the inventor of language. He endowed it by divine gift to Adam and enabled Adam thereby to apprehend the inner natures of the animals whom he brought to the Garden of Eden. And in that apprehension, Adam learned something about himself, and he learned something about God. So when we look at the structure of words, we look at etymologies, we should keep our ear opened to actual insights about the inner essence of the concepts. So Peter Lighthart points out that the biblical authors do not agree with the idea that the etymological fallacy is a fallacy. So this is the etymological fallacy, for those who don't know, is placing the uh, history of a word in a privileged position in discussing the meaning of a word. Now, in one sense, the, it's, that makes a legitimate point, which is that we cannot speak to what a particular author intends decisively just by looking at that word's history. For example, take the word nice. Uh, the word nice uh, comes from a kind of derogatory word that in, um, I believe it's Old French, but I might be uh, incorrect about that. Um, it refers to uh, being weak and things like that. Now, when most people say the word nice, they're not talking about that. But 
it is part of the meaning of the word. When you think of the way that nice is actually used in our language and the ways in which it is used, which is not true of something like friendly, you realize that this older etymological sense is still implicitly present in it. So etymology has something to say about ontology. That's my point. So look at the word being. We talk about the being of God. It's being, being. It's got the ing ending. And the word being is so common that we kind of just miss the reality that this is an ongoing verb which we are using. Being, in reference to God, describes the perfectly united and mutually implicit modalities or modes in which God makes himself known both to other divine persons and to creation. So there's quite a bit to unpack here. First of all, God as God and as the archetype of the good is one who is fruitful. The Father always makes himself known and always extends himself outwards for the sake of others. Think about those qualities that we take to be virtuous. Even in non-Christian societies, there is a disposition to take certain qualities as virtuous. Though there are disagreements here and there, as C.S. Lewis points out, there really is a fundamental core which you can find in most or all human societies. Those qualities that we take to be virtuous are qualities which pertain to the extension of oneself and one's effort or one's energy, one's acts, for the sake of something outside of oneself. Perhaps one is living for the legacy of his, his or her nation or his or her family. Perhaps one is working 80 hours a week in order to provide for one's wife and one's children. There are all sorts of ways in which this dynamic plays out. But one way in which the dynamic doesn't play out is the exaltation as virtuous of someone who lives totally and only for himself and only ever looks inward and has nothing good to say or do about anyone else. Now goodness, goodness is the way that the world is supposed to be. And slow down that phrase and think about it, the way that the world is supposed to be, be, being. The idea of being or existence is implicit in the notion of goodness because it is implicit in the idea of the ought. The idea of the ought concerns final causality. A thing being what it is has a particular goal which is internal to its very existence. It's not imposed from the outside. No, what makes it the unique thing that it is already contains that goal for which it was created and towards which it will naturally strive if it is energized and if it is not um, stopped from doing so externally. Goodness is the way that something ought to be. Now, we use goodness in a wide variety of senses, but they're all analogous to each other. 
moral goodness pertains to that kind of being which is whose realization lies within the domain of the human free choice or of rational choice so why is it that we say that uh, uh, a plant is not a moral agent even if the plant is an invasive species and even if the plant is causing massive ecological problems we say it's a bad plant analogically because it is disrupting the inner harmony the logos as it were of the ecosystem which gives the ecosystem an existence which is greater than the sum of its parts nevertheless we say that this is an uh, analogy rather than literal moral ill because the plant isn't making free choices this is something that sets rational persons apart as the image of god goodness is thus the paradigm or archetype for a thing's being you make a circle what's a good circle well you measure it with respect to the archetypal form of the circle the good of the circle as we talked about in our video on the tree of knowledge good and evil this has a lot to do with what it means to discern between good and evil because discerning between good and evil well this is a word a phrase that's used for kingship and kingship is fundamentally about dominion it's about the capacity to restructure the world to great build great works of architecture and to restructure the world you need to understand the way that the parts fit together in other words you have to understand is a hammer good for this building project or is it good for this building project so you see the ways in which these analogous senses are not analogous kind of in a vague undefined sort of way but the idea of analogy itself has a very specific and concrete and well-defined in principle meaning so being is god's revelatory operation outside of himself and this is where christianity has the great advantage because it can explain how god is good even apart from creation so what sets god apart from the creation well god is not a creature what ontologically and qualitatively makes him something other than the creation well it's that the creation is contingent it depends on ev on god for every moment of its existence god is self-existent the father is self-existent as the father which means he's the father of the son and this father-son relationship is bounded together by love and since an energy is a quality of existence and since an energy to be itself must be revealed must be extended the mutuality of this love the fact that it requires a two-person dyad and requires a revelation of the quality outside of that dyad means that we've got three persons rather than two divine persons so my last video on the series was specifically about uh, this question um, and I, I wrote uh, a paper um, on the theology of the Trinity in the writings of St. Gregory 
Palamas, which if you're interested in, you can ask for it in the comments. It talks about uh, the way in which the energies relate to the theology of the Trinity. So remember that we said actuality is a translation of energia, and activity is also a translation of energia. So these two English words capture two features of what is one concept. The fact that we have two English words is actually quite useful because it enables us to distinguish with great precision distinctive features of this one concept, um, which I'm not sure you could do to the same degree of specificity uh, in the original Greek. So because an actuality, that is a quality of real existence, is an activity, and because an activity is always carried out in relation, God, being self-existent, in order to be God, subsists as the Holy Trinity. He is infinitely actualized as perfect God in the Trinity. Now, creation is a contingent work of God's hands. Creation does not have to exist. If creation ha had to exist, it wouldn't be called creation. It would just be an extension of God because it would necessarily coexist with him. But if goodness entails a self-extension and if self-extension requires a multiplicity of subjects and if God is perfectly good, if that's in terms of the concept of God, well then you have in non-Trinitarian traditions a massive philosophical problem, which is that the creation appears to be a necessary consequence of God's existence. Uh, and in fact, you do find figures within these traditions who follow the logic out to that conclusion. So I think Christianity has a, a, a very great advantage on this point. Notice also that I said he is infinitely various in his being. This doesn't mean that he is infinitely separate. This is a very important point you have to keep in mind. You can have genuine distinction among God's operations, even as those operations are totally coextensive with one another. So the word coextensive is a very useful word. It means wherever one thing exists, wherever A is true, B is also true alongside it. The idea of A implies, by the very nature of the concept, the idea of B. So the analogy that I love to use is that of numerical sets. The philosophy of mathematics has a great deal of useful concepts for Christian theology, and that is because mathematics as an abstract mode of reasoning is a way of studying the mind of God. So mathematics permeates everything. Um, I'm going to make a video on kind of an argument for the existence of God, which is going to uh, put a lot of weight on the philosophy of mathematics. Um, but numerical sets are the way that I understand this. So just take a set of all 
positive integers. So this is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And this is never going to end. You have an actual infinity of positive integers. People who say that it's just a potential infinity, I think that's just a philosophical mistake. Because a potential infinity might imply to a concrete particular thing. But necessarily preceding the possibility for there being a potentially infinite future of sequential moments in time, preceding that is the idea of this infinite set of integers. So take any one of these integers. Take the number 2. Number 2 is what it is. It is not the number 3, and it is not the number 1, it is not the number 5, and so on and so forth. But if you think about it carefully, you will realize that every other number is contained implicitly within this one integer. The number two, what makes it what it is? Well, it is what it is according to its network of relationships. And this is, this gets into the next bullet point. It is what it is in view of its network of relationships. Two, as an internal aspect of its being two is one less than three. It is one more than one. But we shouldn't just think of these relationships in terms of a sequence of positive integers, which is just x plus 1. It has just as immediate and direct relationships with many other integers, simply according to different modes of relation. So in terms of exponency, it is immediately next to the number 4. 2 uh, squared is 4. And every relationship that the number 2 has with these other numbers pertains to the essence of what it means for the number 2 to be the number 2. And so we say that number 2 is not the number 3. There's no way that you're going to be able to say, oh, well, at bottom, they're really fundamentally the same thing. You know, every, they're identical in every respect. No, clearly... 2 and 3 are actually genuinely distinct in the sense that it's a distinction which does not merely pertain to our limited intellectual capacity. And at the same time, 2, 3, 4, every particular in this infinite set contains the whole. And the whole is infinite because it has as a quality of its own being an implicit relation with with, with every other integer. And when we approach the idea of apophatic theology, the premise from which the theological logic unfolds is that being is coextensive with intelligibility. So, this point is something that uh, I've learned from Eric Pearl. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of what he writes on um, Palamas, but uh, his book, Theophany, uh, on the theology of St. Dionysius the Areopagite is absolutely wonderful, and I recommend that you read it. It's um, a wonderful example of clear thinking and clear writing. But he points out that in the Dionysian tradition, being and intelligibility are coextensive with each other. So the capacity to apprehend something according to its logos, this is an intrinsic feature 
of its existence as an existent thing. So take uh, colors. Okay. Colors and numbers are present in each other. This is an example of how everything is in everything else in one way or another. Not everything is everything else, but everything is in everything else. Well, you take numbers and you need them to describe colors if you actually want to get into the nitty-gritty of specific color values and so on and so forth. But set that aside. It's just a kind of interesting thing to throw out there. Uh, how do we know redness? And here I'm not just talking about um, an intellectual capacity to explicitly parse out what we mean when we use the word red. I'm not talking about the human being's capacity to know its form discursively. Instead, I'm talking just about how do we know it visually? How do we know it in consciousness? How do we have the qualitative experience and identify ourselves as having any kind of qualitative experience? Well, imagine that everything was red and everything was one shade of red. So I'm not talking about, you know, there might be shadows cast by things of different spatial vibes. No, it's just red, and that's all you've ever known, and it's all you're ever going to know. Are you going to be able to actually pick out and identify redness as something which is intelligible? No, you're not. Because in order to know something, it must be known in a network of distinctions, of similarities and differences. Now, when we use the word opposite, we are not using it to mean something which is as different as anything possibly could be. Actually, for something to be an opposite, it must be in many respects very similar with that which it opposes. Take black and white. Are black and white different, as different as different things could be? Well, no. They share a number of qualities. They both pertain to uh, color. They both pertain to modes in which light is or is not reflected. They have very similar relationships in terms of the uh, neural networks that they access in our brain, and on and on and on. And that is why I say it's a network not just of difference, but of similarities and differences. We know particular things as themselves because they are contextualized within a much broader web. So this gets back to the point of language. Language is a revelation of the whole. The logos is the archetype for the whole creation. And we say in the Eucharist that every particle of the Eucharist contains the whole Christ. Well, the Eucharist is a revelation of Christ's work in and through and for the cosmos. And so we can use this as a window to understand ontology in general. And the Logos is, when the word is used in scripture, 
it is all about structure and regularity and pattern. Just take the Old Testament use of the Logos. So in John's Gospel, the specific text to which uh, his Logos Christology is referring is Isaiah. So Isaiah 40 to 55 has a narrative about the Word of God. The Word of God is sent forth and does not return void, but accomplishes that for which God purposes it. So you have this idea of final cause, you have this idea of purpose, and what is it that it actually does? Well, it is the seed which enters into the fertile ground of the world, and it produces a great harvest. Well, if you look at plant life, and you look at the things which grow out of the ground, and you really pay attention to them, this is something that we all need to start doing more, which is paying attention to the absolute weird splendor of creation. Pick a leaf off of a tree and count the number of veins that it has and ask why. Because there is an answer to that question. This is the good childlikeness which Jesus commended. Children will always ask why, 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 and eventually they're told to, to kind of shove off, but they are wiser than the adults in the room because all things are suffused with divine purpose, and that divine purpose pertains to God's own self-disclosure according to a symbolic grammar. So take a look at a leaf or plants, or take a snail. The, uh, the shell of a snail has a very regular and aesthetically pleasing mathematical and quantifiable pattern. So everything in creation has a structure. It's made up of these distinct parts or particulars, but the particulars are related to each other according to a larger and intelligible pattern. And it's that pattern which draws us in to apprehend the logos or the nature of a thing. So when we use language in the common sense of speech, writing, so on and so forth, it's a complicated but well-ordered grammar which signifies the network of relations, the threads which bind together the creation according to its own distinctness as a symbolic revelation of God. So every word is a sign or a symbol of a particular concept, and the words, according to their etymological networks, according to their etymological history, a thread through time, and also according to the verbal relationships which they seem to have with other words in our language, they help us to see particular relationships which exist in the logi of the underlying things which are signified by these words. So the way I put it here is in language, context is king and analogy is queen. So take a, actually take anything in the cosmos and you're going to find in one way or another, it works out to a fractal structure. A fractal is basically wheels within wheels. You have one pattern 
and you zoom in and you find it's made up of 10 different instances of that very same pattern. And you zoom out and you find that the original image was actually one of 10 instances of the pattern which made up a larger pattern and so on and so forth. Now, this exists all over the mathematical world. There's all sorts of um, permutations that you can put numbers through that produce these mathematically beautiful fractal structures when you project them digitally. But the amazing thing is that it's not limited to the abstract world. It's all over the concrete particular world of creation. So look at um, the coastline of a continent. This will map out according to a fractal structure. You can look at a branching tree. That's a pervasive imagery in the scriptures. And a tree is often described as the symbol for the entirety of creation. A tree has a trunk and then it branches out, but then each one of the branches is a trunk for its own set of branches and so on and so forth. It expands and outwards in a repeating way. But it's a repeating way which contributes to a larger whole. It's not just kind of repetition and there's no you know, larger structure or relationship going on there. Now this fractal structure is something we see in language, but it is something I think we can root in the life of God. So take the divine energies, the divine processions. They are infinitely various, I've said. There are an infinite plenitude of divine processions. But just as every color on the spectrum, and you can divide the colors down infinitely. Okay, You can always be splitting them in half again. We can't see all of those subtleties, but they do exist objectively in terms of the qualities of light, which hold true for the world if we had comprehensively perfect eyes. So God is simple, meaning he doesn't have parts. So we do affirm divine simplicity, just not in the Thomistic sense. And there are different interpretations of simplicity in the Christian West as well, I should emphasize. But we affirm simplicity in the sense that God as God is indivisible. There is no quality which he possesses, which he possesses contingently. He can realize his activities in a contingent fashion, such as in the creation, but he doesn't possess any divine quality by a contingent set of circumstances. Nor does he possess any divine quality which lacks in its inner nature the implicit presence of the totality of divine glory. So take, say, justice or righteousness and love. Now these two divine qualities, they interpenetrate with each other. They weave together. You won't understand what love is unless you understand what God's righteousness is all about. And you won't understand what God's righteousness or justice is all about unless you keep his divine love in mind. Nevertheless, we are not referring to exactly the same thing. But then let's take the divine love. Well, does God have only one kind of love? No, he has an infinite variety of loves. So C.S. Lewis, one of uh, my favorite books by him is The Four Loves, uh, which talks about the distinct kinds of love which exist in human societies. And agape is what it is 
because it envelops and wraps itself around the other three loves, Storge, uh, Philia, and Eros, and transforms it thereby. But you can find an infinite number of loves in God. Well, then you can take any one of those, and you'll find an infinite number of that subset, and so on and so forth. And then you can do it as you ascend back upwards. You can find that the original love, which you selected as the primary quality of analysis, is in fact an instance of another set. Uh, so you can take that in any direction. So that's the way that the divine processions are woven together in the life of God. And God always acts in and through the Son. So we call the Son the Logos because the Father is always acting or speaking or self-consulting with the Logos. An interesting point I was just thinking about today, the um, figure of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. And the three-letter root for the word angel or malach uh, concerns self-consultation or concerns consultation. So we often read in the scriptures, God said in his heart or said to himself. Well, as I understand it, the root, which is inflected in a nominal form in the word angel, concerns this kind of relationship. Now, the Logos is the interior life of God insofar as he knows himself as himself. And he knows himself as himself in and through the generation of the Son and the love of that generated Son by the Spirit. And that is why I think we have the angel of the Lord being called the angel of the Lord, because the first use of the word angel in the Bible pertains to the angel of the Lord. And out of the 17 times that the word angel is used in Genesis, 15 of them refer to Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. By the way, 17 is the reduced value in terms of gematria of the tetragrammaton, and God says of the angel, my name is in him. So I have another video on symbolic numbers in scripture if you want to uh, get, get into what that means specifically. But just a cool little tidbit, I think. God's self-consultation, his self-knowledge occurs in and through the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus, the Messiah. So this network of threads and internal relationships, a web, whatever you want to call it, will be replicated in the world of language. Language is a comprehensive grammar of symbolism, which is always developing. So God created the human family as one human person. And then from his side, he took another human person. And then their mutual indwelling, their union in the conjugal act, begins the process of multiplying mankind outwards. But the image of God is a single organism. It's one image of God who has created male and female. It's one image of God who's multiplied into a plenitude of 70 nations. So it is one organism. And insofar 
as the image of God pertains to the Logos, insofar as our dominion over the creation concerns our capacity to manage and restructure the creation, to imitate God in our creative task, and to become his partner in the perfecting, the developing, the growing up of the world. Well, language is essential to that because it's the means by which we not only communicate with each other, but we also consult with ourselves, going back to what I just said. Language is the means by which we acquire internal understanding of things. We talk to ourselves if we have, at least I do, if we're working through a very difficult problem. But even if you don't verbally and audibly talk to yourself, almost everybody has an internal dialogue going on. Because language is a tool for understanding, not just a tool for communication. And I think we need to keep in mind and emphasize that neither of these roles is actually more ultimate than the other. So I think we tend to imagine that language is meant for communication with other human beings um, in contradistinction to what is kind of like a bonus feature, which is, you know, it helps us clear up some concepts in our mind. But actually, the capacity that it has to give us clarity is exactly that, which enables us to be joined with other human beings because other human beings are created in the image of God and acquiring true wisdom, true understanding enables us to fulfill our divine task as the image of God in being a member of this united human family. And language grows as mankind grows. The human family is created an infant, just as the creation is created an infant, because man is a microcosm of the world. And the human family multiplies and develops through time. In the world to come, there will be no more reproduction because mankind will have reached the full number of the appointed children of Adam. And the creative task which God endowed to man as the image of God, as a single organism, as the human family, is carried out through language, as we've just been discussing. And so we find in the development of languages uh, that it's not just kind of an incidental, you know, things are just roving this way and that, and there's no real order or rhyme or reason to, to it all. It's just, you know, things are changing and, you know, shit happens. Uh, but there is a telos, I think, to the development of language. Um, I am a huge admirer of the English language. Um, I love the English language. People often say that Greek is more precise than English. I just think that's, that's just not true. English vocabulary is so rich because it has assimilated so many words from so many other languages because it is the lingua franca in a world of 8 billion people. Human beings develop in communion because God is perfect existence, God is communion, and so human beings grow towards the fullness of their humanity in communion with other persons with whom they are consubstantial. So it is only natural that their language would develop and become more perfect, become more suited to grasping 
the subtleties of the world as there is more commerce in this broader sense among the various nations and cultures of the world. So each of these nations remains itself. It's not eradicated or assimilated into this just babelic, undifferentiated mass. But we find that its selfhood is enriched in its network of relations with all these other nations. So when you have a synonym in English, sometimes you'll get a, um, a word from two different languages which mean an identical thing. Now, those two words will not survive in the same mind unless a subtlety of meaning develops in the mind. And that subtlety of meaning is very rarely included in dictionary definitions. It often is just kind of like a contribution that it makes to the tone of one's writing. One might be perceived to be writing something higher and more um, poetically uh, emphatic if one is using French-derived words. And one might be perceived to be speaking more vigorously and forcefully with staccatos, uh, as in kind of a musical piece, staccatos, um, if one is using German-derived words. That's just an example. I'm not making an argument about German or French, but it's an example of the way kind of this all cashes out. So language, and I know we've kind of gone on a bit of a tangent here, but I hope you got something out of it. Language being what it is, is structured according to its contextual relationships. So this was the original point of why I started talking about fractals. You take a word and a word is an expression of a sentence and the sentence has its place within the paragraph and the paragraph has its place within the chapter and the chapter has its place within the book and the book has its place within the whole canon of world literature and you could take any one of those levels and if you're a talented um, reader of texts you'll be able to kind of use that book or that chapter or that paragraph as the window through which you're going to look at the whole. And so language has this structure of concentric circles, perhaps not right to call it exactly a fractal when we're talking about these concentric circles, but those concentric circles we find in the cosmos writ large. You just take, for example, the solar system, which has uh, the sun, four inner worlds, then it has an asteroid belt, and then four outer worlds and another asteroid belt. It's very elegantly designed. But these concentric circles are a major feature of our solar system and of countless other solar systems. Same thing is true of the structure of an atom. The structure of an atom has a nucleus, and then you've got concentric circles of protons, electrons, and neutrons whirling around it. Um, this is a pervasive structure throughout the creation, and it's also found in the world of language. Everything that we say is also just soaking in idiomatic languages. I think that we make a mistake when we take the notion of an idiom and separate it out from other aspects of our language and kind of treat it as, you know, something which you could isolate. 
Because the reality is everything that we say is usually idiomatic in one, one way or another. And idioms are not a shortcut. They're not kind of an accident in the development of a language, which have basically the sole function of making your speech unintelligible to those of foreign cultures. What idiomatic languages do, what idiomatic language does is it creates and reflects these kinds of relationships which exist in the inner nature of the concepts themselves. I'm not saying it's true in every case, but I think languages do have a curious way of growing towards the revelation and expression of the actual qualities of the world. So he's a bright boy. Think about how often we use this kind of imagery. And we're not, we don't even think about it. He's bright. Or we say someone's dumb. He's rather dim. Well, brightness and dimness, this is about light. This is about uh, visual qualities. Why are we using it to refer to intelligence? And there's a whole symbolic grammar which could be expounded on here. And the basic story is that rationality is that feature of human identity according to which we govern and manage and restructure the creation and that constitutes our sovereignty over the creation and look at genesis 1:14. we're told that the sun the moon the stars the heavenly lights are made to rule the day and the night now there's more we could go into with that but i'm not going to point being is that there is a pretty straightforward explanation of why these, this idiom actually kind of makes genuine sense. It's not a matter of happenstance, which has no implications for our interpretation of the world. A little more spicy, uh, what a lunatic. Well, lunatic, that's derived from luna, the moon, or a jovial occasion. Well, jove, this is just an archaic way of saying Jupiter. So everything in the creation is symbolic. Everything that is quantitative is also qualitative because each quantity has an intrinsic quality to it. So the planets, and in, the, in terms of the seven traditional planets, which begins with Luna, Luna is one of these planets, the planets themselves have a symbolic quality internal to their being. And you can find all across ancient cultures a remarkably consistent set of imagery and symbols to describe the planets. So we'll be talking about this more in uh, the discussion of the space trilogy. But it's one of these features in the world um, which I just think is, is so profound and beautiful. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day to day they pour forth speech. Night to night they give forth knowledge. This is not the heavenly lights just saying God exists. They're saying things about God. It's speech. It's knowledge. They're giving wisdom. You can read what God has written in his language, in the language of creation. A distinction is a connecting, a connecting relationship. It's not a separation. And this is one of the most important things that um, I actually want to say in the video. It might seem kind of trivial, but uh, 
we associate all sorts of imagery and conceptual baggage subconsciously with the language of distinction that actually is causing us trouble when we're looking at other concepts and we don't even think it's coming to mind but it does shape our view of things in subtle but still very powerful ways a distinction between one thing and another is not a way of describing how divided they are okay what it is is a description of the quality of their relationship so here's an example we could use just in terms of space if i'm let's say 10 feet away from my brother i could frame this in terms of a division in terms of a separation between the two of us or i could frame the language of space as the grammar of the connecting relation which binds us together the space is the means by which we are bound together how do we express the specific quality of that being bound to one another and existing in relation to one another we do it using spatial grammar in relation to the doctrine of god this is important when we get to that language of divine simplicity that we find in the tradition uh, some people will encounter these affirmations that there are genuinely distinct qualities in god there are really distinct formalities in the divine mind and which have always existed in the divine mind as he eternally thinks his thoughts but it doesn't violate the indivisibility of god which is what is meant by the traditional doctrine of divine simplicity and the reason it doesn't violate the indivisibility of god is because each of these qualities contains all the other qualities inside itself implicitly and each of these qualities exists in the necessary relationship with everything else which is woven through the life of god now here's the big point pay attention to this one the ontological source for all created natures is the infinite web of divine processions divine processions here we are using in the sense of the dionysian terminology we discussed in past videos that's where god extends himself outwards in and through the sun according to the holy spirit he extends himself outwards and then that outward self-extension in virtue of it being what it is at the same time reverts back in to the heart of god so god created the spatial world as a symbolic grammar for himself so we should be using that grammar and thinking thinking about it in, in these terms we'll understand that it is indeed a symbol you imagine yourself extending your arms outwards to embrace another person you embrace them and then you draw them back in but if this is a genuine act of affection being drawn back in is not a merely passive act on the part of the person whom you're hugging they actively receive and reciprocate your expression of affection so procession and reversion is the eternal divine pattern of affection and love among the three persons and creation 
is an imprinted type of that archetype. Everything in creation exists because of its participation in these creative activities, in these creative energies. And they didn't become active when God created the world. They were already in this infinitely swift motion. They were already active within the life of the Holy Trinity. And so creation will always and necessarily bear the imprint of these interpersonal Trinitarian relationships because the multiplicity of divine qualities can never be separated from the multiplicity and threefold nature of the divine persons. That's why I think in the New Testament, uh, you read texts about the multiplicity of divine gifts, and Paul connects this to the doctrine of the Trinity. He says there are many gifts, but one Lord, refers to Jesus, many uh, gifts, but one God, many gifts, but one Spirit. Now, he uses different words for gifts there, uh, but I can't actually remember the specific words he uses. Point being, the idea of unity and diversity, and this, the point here is that there's one church, one body in Christ. The idea of unity and diversity and the deep relationship that that has with the Trinity is not something later theologians notice. Paul not only understands and affirms the theology of the Trinity, but there's clear evidence that he reflected consciously on the unique aspects which Trinitarian, the unique implications that Trinitarian doctrine would have for his profession of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as revealed in Jesus the Messiah. Continuing the uh, PowerPoint. What makes a bear, the animal, a bear, is God's processive self-extension through the Son, in the Spirit, whereby he imprints himself contingently, creating out of nothing, contingently in a unique way, thus constituting a creature according to its unique set of properties. So when I said there's an infinite set of formalities in the divine mind, this is kind of what I'm talking about. So in God's mind, there is the idea for any and everything that could possibly exist in creation, any kind of coherent combination of attributes is present in the mind of God because every divine operation is woven together with every other divine operation. So you have a, an infinite number of permutations which are present to the mind of God. Now, a logos refers to a distinctive set of creative energies as they're extended outwards when it becomes concrete in the actual realization of a creature. So before the creation of the world, you know, God has an idea in his mind of a bear, what a bear might be. And he also has an idea in his mind of what a centaur might be. Now, there is a logos of a bear, but there's no logos of a centaur because logos, and I'm speaking with a little L here, logos means the idea, the form of an actually existent creature. So the archetype of the creature is present eternally in the mind of God, and then that is realized in an imprinted way in the act of creation. So we'll talk about this more in the next video, but you want to understand the idea of imprint 
um, like you have a signet ring, okay, uh, and that a king or a high government official uses to stamp his postage with. And the signet ring is a outwards extension of a particular shape. And when he presses that down, it creates an inwards extension representing that shape, even though the gold which is in the signet ring remains totally separate from the shape that is impressed upon the paper or the ground or what have you. Now, what we're going to talk about in the next video is the unification of archetype and type. But just to give you a, uh, a little bit of a wrap up on the argument here, being is coextensive with intelligibility, right? Being is coextensive with intelligibility. To say that something is intelligible is to say that it has or is being. Being is constituted in this web of divine processions, which are tied together in an infinite variety of likeness and unlikeness. It has a structure. There is a hierarchy of divine processions, and they are all present in all the other ones. That's what constitutes it as being. That's what constitutes it as intelligible. Here's the key point. These divine processions are actualizations of God's essence, of what he is by essence. So we only know anything via its operations. So you only know me through my operations, through my activities. And we only know God through his operations. I'm going to argue that there's one other sense to apophatic theology. This isn't the end of the story with respect to um, the way in which God can be described apophatically. But it is interesting to note that Gregory of Nyssa also uses apophatic language for the human being. Um, Paniagotis Nellis, in his book Deification in Christ, has a discussion of this in a chapter on the patristic doctrine of the garments of skin. So because this web of divine processions is a realization of what God is by essence, so if you want the metaphysics of that, I can link you to some resources. Um, I'm also going to make a video in the future on the doctrine of divine energies specifically. Because this web of divine processions is an actualization by the divine persons of their nature, of their essence, the divine essence necessarily is not a member of this web. And that's the key point. The divine essence is that which is expressed and actualized in this web of processions, in this celestial hierarchy of divine processions. But it is not itself a member of that web or hierarchy. Therefore, it stands above those qualities which constitute a thing as truly and really intelligible. Being is intelligibility. Intelligibility is understood through a network of similarity and distinction. And being is an actualization in a web of similar and distinct divine processions of the divine essence. 
Therefore, the divine essence is not a subject within this network. It stands above it. Thus, God is, in his essence, beyond being. And that is what is meant by the phrase beyond being. So, uh, we'll come back next week, or ne I don't know when exactly it will be, maybe later this week. Um, this won't be my only video this week, of course. Uh, but we'll come back uh, relatively soon to bring this series to what I hope will be a satisfying and um, illuminating conclusion. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all who have made contributions, and please do remember to pray for me and have me commemorated in the Divine Liturgy, so in the diptychs, if you're an Orthodox Christian, and my uh, Orthodox name is Seraphim. So thank you all so very much. <laughs>